we take up today and uh, this will be the next to last lecture from uh, this book. Uh, I have extracted especially, well, the first the, in the trilogy, it's actually a trilogy, in the first book of the trilogy was the bulk of the content of what I had wanted to bring to the church and by way of teaching. And then uh, in book two, which was I, I, I extracted only a, a few readings because uh, it is primarily uh, dealing with the book of Revelation, was not a commentary on Revelation, but uh, but he was showing there principally, he was showing how that Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. And in that revelation of John, he's showing the connection, connectivity between, here's the book of Revelation all the way to the end of the New Testament, and here's the Old Testament, and he's showing the continuity, the connectivity of those things through some of his applied interpretations. I don't agree with some of his interpretations, but I do agree with him that, uh, that, that one may go to the book of Revelation and will find there, uh, the Christ revealed who is the same Christ revealed in all of the Old Testament scriptures. That is the point that, that I have sought to make. And, uh, he, I think he did, in fact, did quite well in making that point that the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, is the, is the fulfillment of all of that Old Testament. And you remember there's this, uh, reciprocal effect that you can go to the New Testament. Yes, to the book of Revelation, and it will give you light, further light, in understanding and interpreting the Old Testament revelation. That doesn't, the New Testament revelation does not eradicate or in any way nullify the Lord Jesus said he didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. New revelation does not nullify the previous revelation, which is the whole Old Testament. It rather is the culmination, the fulfillment, and therefore the further under interpretation of that Old Testament is found in Christ and certainly in the book of Revelation. That book is about him. So that was what was in the second book of, uh, of the uh, uh, trilogy, Goldsworthy's trilogy. Now we come to the last book, and there's some things I would like to extract from this last book as well. In, this, in the last book of, of his trilogy, Goldsworthy is dealing with this thing that we did talk a little bit about before, and that is the, the uh, wisdom books. I've never encountered that specific phrase before, Goldsworthy is the first I've ever heard, I've ever heard to use it. 
But he talks about the wisdom books, which for him are uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, and some of the Psalms. Those are the things he specifically categorizes as the wisdom books. And in this third section, this third book of his trilogy, he is dealing with wisdom, the wisdom books, and of course how that they reveal the Christ who is our wisdom, the scripture says. Uh, he talks about uh, Christ, our wisdom. He talks in this third book about, and, and again, I'm not covering the whole thing, uh, but you can read it, but he, he talks about uh, uh, the wisdom of Christ in chapter 2, uh, page 345. He talks about the wisdom of the world in chapter 3, page 358, etc. He talks about Christian wisdom, uh, Solomon in all his glory. Again, in this third book, he uh, he's, not make, he's not producing a commentary on these books, but he is treating... He is treating the wisdom books, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, and some of the Psalms. He's treating from those books how that they set forward the wisdom of God, which is Christ. The wisdom of God, which is Christ. In his summary on page 345, his summary of chapter 2, he says this. Now this, this, this is the chapter on Christ our wisdom. He says all problems concerning relationships of some, all problems concern relationships of some kind. Our relationship to God is perhaps the greatest of all problems. Well, it's certainly the greatest of all our problems. The answer to this and to all other problems lies in Jesus, who is the perfectly wise man in his relationship to God. If the big, big, big problem with man, fallen man, is a problem of relationship, well, that is only solved. That problem is only, can only be solved in Christ who was man, perfect man, who maintained a perfect relationship with God. <laughs> Therefore, he is the, what goes where the use of the phrase, the perfectly wise man indeed I, I say amen Jesus is teaching about wisdom and his constant use of wisdom sayings prepare the way for Paul's statement about Christ as our wisdom wisdom is a characteristic of the person who is rightly related to God Jesus came to be the truly God-related man for us, and therefore he is wisdom for us. One outworking of this in our lives is that our way of thinking about things 
is changed through the gospel. True wisdom is a result of being related to God through the person and work of Christ. I think we can all heartily concur with that. It's all, you see the interaction between these things. Christ is the perfect man. He was perfect in his wisdom. By being our substitute, we have access to that perfect wisdom. And by it, we become more and more conformed to him, therefore more and more wise in the biblical sense of wisdom, the biblical understanding of wisdom. It's all wrapped up in Christ. And this is, again, this is just how he is uh, showing this this fact that that uh, the, these wisdom books with their wisdom sayings, <laughs> these are phrases that, that the Goldsworthy uses. I've never encountered anywhere, but I have no problem. The wisdom books with their wisdom sayings find their whole uh, uh, existence, their whole uh, meaning in Christ. It's all in Christ. So if we go to Christ and say, okay, in time, you say, okay, Christ is the fulfillment of all that wisdom. Yes, he is. But you can also go back the other way and say, now in Christ, I can go back and see more clearly, more fully, the wisdom in these books because I have Christ now to the fulfillment of it all. So that is his summary of Christ uh, as our wisdom. 300 and page 358 is his summary of wisdom of the world. Now there's quite a lengthy discussion in this chapter and I found it very interesting. Very, some very intriguing thoughts in this chapter. I confess that I don't have enough depth to rightly assess them. But as I read it, I, I was constantly thinking of some others in our midst who do have the depth to perceive all that he's saying. But there is this, this subject matter of the wisdom of the world. That is, in general, even the unbeliever can, by the definition I've given, Goldsworthy has given, by the definition given of what true wisdom is, can the unbeliever have wisdom at all? If so, how how do you define that? How do you explain that? So that's the kind of questions that this chapter deals with. But I give you the summary on page uh, 358. There are two kinds of wisdom that need to be clearly distinguished. The first is worldly wisdom. And by the way, let me just pause there and just say this. Even in that first statement, uh, there are some among us whose uh, knowledge and skill in such uh, intellectual exercises uh, could, could expound and enlarge on that very thought. But I'm not interested in that depth. 
I just want you to get the message here. There are two kinds of wisdom, so says Goldsworth. Need to be clearly distinguished. The first is worldly wisdom, which looks at the world as if God were not real and thus has not revealed himself in the person and work of Christ. Now that's how he's defining worldly wisdom, if wisdom it may be called. It is, it is a wisdom that operates as if there is no God at all, and certainly not Christ. The other is true wisdom, which comes from God, who alone can tell us what the universe really means. <laughs> I, I suppose now we're getting into the realm of, of uh, a definition of reality. What is reality? What do we, how do we know what anything really means? Well, his statement is that true wisdom comes from God and he, it is through him alone that we have any real meaning of what the universe means. Yet in daily life, now, now here's where it goes another, yet in daily life we draw constantly on worldly wisdom because it Works, and I put quotes around that because it, it works. Right? It works. It is based on human experience and involves the recognition that there is order in the universe. And of course, is this not one of the great conundrums for unbelieving science? Science demands and, and presupposes and cannot function without the reality of fixed order. It, it assumes order as it, as it, uh, prognosticates what will occur in various, you know, chemical reactions or whatever. It, it, it assumes fixed order. Where in reality the unbeliever denies the God of that order and really sabotages their own, their own uh, theories because they've denied it. They've denied ultimate order or the ultimate source of all order. So this is a real conundrum for, for unbelievers. But they do, nevertheless, they assume this order, they assume certain orders, and from that they can derive a certain wisdom, worldly wisdom. He said it is based on human experience and involves the recognition, sorry, but when it, when it addresses the ultimate or eternal significance of things, worldly wisdom is opposed to the wisdom of God. Within the limited view of practical living, worldly and godly wisdom may coincide so that there is a meeting of the minds of Christian and non-Christian, of Israelite and pagan. But there is no agreement 
And I supplied the words. There is no agreement between them. That is between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. There is no agreement between them about the basis upon which we ultimately interpret things and events. The Christian distinctive, Christian's distinctive claim is that God the Creator alone can interpret all things in the universe. Okay? So he's, he's, he's playing with, well not playing with, but he's bantering back and forth this, the subject of worldly wisdom, godly wisdom. He's given clear definitions for each. He's made the point that worldly wisdom does recognize order unavoidably to be intellectually honest. Even the worldling has to acknowledge certain laws, certain principles, certain regularity, certain order. They derive from that, says Goldsworthy, an element of wisdom that is in fact accurate and can coincide with, be compatible with the godly man's wisdom inasmuch as it concurs with God's order. Okay, But then he makes the point, however, that that is a mere coincidence or parallel coincidence and parallel between godly wisdom and worldly wisdom at that point. That's purely, that's purely a coincidence. But that he presses the point that the only real wisdom as biblical wisdom or godly wisdom is the wisdom that sets God the creator first. And, and over all things and says he is the only way of rightly interpreting anything in the universe. He is the only, the only means. But without him, without him, without the knowledge of him, without acknowledging him, acknowledging him, you cannot have true wisdom. He is his own interpreter. The song says he is his own interpreter. And so without him, there is only at best worldly wisdom, which is really nothing more in my opinion, and I think it's what he's saying. I think worldly wisdom is nothing more than uh, the, the unbeliever's uh, intellectual ability to recognize God's order and acknowledge it. Whether he recognizes or acknowledges God or not, he recognizes and acknowledges his order. And, and that is to some, on some level, a wisdom. That is a worldly wisdom. Okay. Then on page 307, uh, 67, we can go back, by the way, and discuss any of this. At You'd like to, but I'm just I'm just going to get through with a with our lesson. On well, 367, he takes up the subject of worldviews in conflict, 
He said the Christian rejects the assumption that a universe which is shut up against God is shut up against the God of the Bible. We reject any assumption that starts out by rejecting the God of the Bible. He accepts, rather, that is the Christian, that God is self-sufficient, personal, and in complete control. While the atheist view of reality, and this is where, boy, we could get into it. <laughs> Some among us could carry us to flights of that I'm dizzy and can't go. Uh, but uh, when we start talking about reality, the view of reality, and uh, Goldsworthy doesn't do that. He's making a point. He says, while the atheist view of reality is a closed system of cause and effect, the Christian view is a universe in which cause and effect are established by God and open to His sovereign intervention. Now that's a very bold distinction to be made. The atheist or atheistic thinker sees a universe and describes it only in terms of cause and effect. The Christian view of reality says, no, there is a God and cause and effect are His to order. He has established them. He may intervene sovereignly at any time to adjust them. It all belongs to God. That's the Christian view. Now he says, we need the revelation of God in order to know that the universe is in fact like this. Uh, I don't know, would you call that presupposition, presuppositionalism? I mean, we start out with that. We don't try to, we don't try to build anything until we establish this, this base. That God is God, that the world is His, that He orders and controls it. We start with that as a given. Okay? We start with that as a given. And Goldsworthy says that the only way we can even know that is from His revelation. We can't work that out intellectually. We can only have that if we have a revelation, the revelation of God, which we have in his word. And of course, the point of his entire book, his entire writings, is that that revelation is in Christ. That's the whole point. And I love that. He says, we do not know all the answers yet. We never will know all the answers. Because some can be known by God alone. Because God has revealed that the ultimate meaning of reality lies beyond the ability of man to discover for himself, we know that empirical knowledge is always in that 
sent is always in that sense defective. In other words, there is no way the greatest of human minds can by by the purely by the exercise of intellect work out the meaning of reality. <laughs> What man discovers by himself and what he reasons from it will never bring him to understand God or know him. That's absolutely right. Thus we have returned to Paul's assertion that worldly wisdom cannot know God. 1 Corinthians 1.21 the Bible characteristically looks at reality in terms of relationships. Because God is the creator of all things, these relationships must begin with God. To understand what it means to be human, we must know man as the image of God. The non-Christian can describe many things about man in a way that is useful within a restricted framework. But while we can look at man purely in terms of structure, chemistry, anatomy, and so on, none of these approaches can show us the real nature of man. They do not provide a satisfactory explanation of the uniqueness of man in the purposes of God. They can never discover and pinpoint the exhaustive, the, the exclusive trait of humanity created in the image of God. Man's intellect will never ever be able to explain. And one illustration, you've all heard it, I guess, from uh, studying or reading in after Christian scientists, those who are believers and true men of science. You know, man is the only creature that looks at the stars at night and his heart outpaces his head and a dog looks up at the stars and he just sees lights. Man looks up at the stars and something inside of him reaches up and says he's thinking on a higher plane. He's thinking higher thoughts. It's not just the physical universe. His heart is drawn to something that's bigger than he is. That's the image of God. Science will never explain it. And they have no answer for it. Beauty. The whole subject of beauty, which is something that's been being talked about in our midst recently. The whole subject of beauty. <laughs> Science has no explanation for it. On the next page, 370, we can summarize this discussion by a contrast of three positions. Now here they are just simply laid out for you. First, the atheistic humanist claims to know enough to say that God does not exist. Wow. Really? 
This is a claim to know everything. For he admits that he does not know everything. For if he admits that he does not know everything, how does he know that God is not included in what he does not know? <laughs> Do you follow that line of reasoning? <laughs> Atheist says, well, I, I know there's no God. Well, do you know everything? Well, no, I don't know everything. Well, then is it possible that God is in that body of things you don't know? So there's that. Secondly, the agnostic humanist thinks to avoid the problem of the atheist by saying that we cannot know if God exists or not. He may or he may not. But this is also a claim to claim exhaustive knowledge. For how can we know that God's existence cannot be known other than by knowing everything there is to know? <laughs> so again, they're, they're bankrupt. They're intellectually bankrupt to provide any answers for these things. The last thing left for him to discover may be the existence that God either exists or does not exist. That may be the last. So how can, how can he say that he can't be known unless he knows everything? But if there's anything he doesn't know, then maybe he doesn't know that God can be known. Finally, the Christian knows that he does not have exhaustive knowledge, but he knows also through revelation, God's revelation, that God, God does have exhaustive knowledge and can therefore define for us what reality is. By the same revelation, this God has told us all that we need to know in order to know him truly. This God, by that revelation, has told us everything we need to know in order to know him truly. The Christian can know God truly. He can know man truly and the created order truly. He knows none of these things exhaustively, but he does know them truly. Very Wise, in my opinion. Uh, the remainder of this chapter deals with uh, the Proverbs, the Job and the some some of the Psalms, uh, other wisdom books, and uh, 
I just want to conclude with the reading from chapter 11, 400, page 497. Christ and the perfection of order. He said, now that we have considered wisdom in the context of Old Testament theology, we can move on to the point from which we started. Christ is our wisdom. I indicated at the beginning of this study that what the New Testament says about Christ as wisdom needs to be understood against the Old Testament teaching on the subject. This is consistent with the method of biblical theology which begins with Christ as the fullest revelation of God to man and the one through whom we turn from darkness to light. Thus Christ himself directs us to the Old Testament as that which speaks of him and which he fulfills. A Christian understanding of the Old Testament means that we read it in the light of its relationship to Christ. And that has been my whole point in this whole session of study. Bottom of page 499, salvation history finds its goal and fulfillment in Christ. So too does wisdom. Three aspects of wisdom confront us in the New Testament. First, the gospel narratives portray Jesus as a wise man who in the form of form and content of his many of his sayings follows in the traditions of the wisdom teachers of Israel. Secondly, Jesus goes beyond the actual the actual uh sorry it uh Secondly, Jesus goes beyond this actually to claim to be the wisdom of God. He is not just the, the epitome of the wisdom and he teaches the wisdom. He says he is the wisdom. And thirdly, certain New Testament writers, probably notably Paul, outstanding, uh, understanding the meaning of Christ's person and work in the light of certain wisdom ideas. Thus, wisdom is seen as an important strand of Christology. We recognize also that to say that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, including wisdom, means far more than that he is the end of a process and gains his meaning from what has preceded him. You see the difference? It's not that Christ is just the end of a process and so we see him as wise because he's... No, he is the wisdom of God and he gives meaning to everything that went before. We should be clear about this point. The relationship of the two testaments, which is what this whole class has been about, the relationship of the two testaments is such that while the New Testament presupposes the old, the old find it, finds its real meaning in the new. As to the new uh, presupposing the old, we come to the new with the knowledge of the old in order to understand much of its terminology and thought forms. But as to the new fulfilling the old, we know what the old is ultimately about only as we see its goal in Jesus Christ. We started with the gospel, with the testimony of Jesus of Nazareth, and found that it drove us back to the Old Testament 
in order to understand its presuppositions. But we go back to the Old Testament. But to go back to the Old Testament is like jumping into a swiftly flowing stream which carries us forward again to our starting point. There we see that all the various strands, images, and perspectives of the Old Testament are drawn together in the New Testament in the person of Jesus Christ. So I hope that you've gotten out of all of this clear, clearly in your mind that the whole of the scriptures, Old and New Testament, are one continuum of revelation about Christ. It's the book of salvation. It is the book about salvation. It is the book of God that tells man everything he must know pertaining to his salvation. And it is absolutely, totally united, connected, solidified one purpose, one goal, one one person, Jesus Christ, and there is no, no, no separation of those things. No separation. One continuous revelation about the person of Christ. I hope that if you, nothing else, we've wasted all these classes if you don't get that connection, if you don't understand that. That's what it's all about. Now, once you do see that, once you understand that, then it gives you a strong, <laughs> going to use the word immunization in our day. There's a term we all understand. Whether we, whatever you may think about it, at least you understand the term. To understand this rightly is to immunize you against many errors that are out there. Many errors of thinking, many errors of theology that want to take the scriptures and and dissect them and break them apart and say, okay, well, this doesn't go with this. And there's no way this connects to that. And, oh, by the way, God finished with that. <clears throat> it's done. That's it. We're done. He, he's never, that's, that's nothing. That we Forget about that. We don't even need to read about that. Forget about that. We're over here now. All, of, all these errors of thinking, all of those, you'll be immunized against them if you have this principle clearly in your mind. The unity of the scriptures, the fact that they are only and all of them about Christ. They're about Christ. Now, we can discuss any of that you'd like, but I'll close the lecture with this. I have not asked you in this whole study and with this book, I have not asked you to read any of it for yourself. Uh, and now I will. There will be one more class, and for that class, I want to assign you a reading. I want every one of you to read page 543 through 549. That's the conclusion of his treatment of all of this, and it is marvelous. It's under the title, Christian Wisdom 
in the technological age. He has written much about wisdom. I did not cover a lot of it. I did not read a lot of it. I didn't want to get into a lot of it. It didn't serve my purpose for this study. But I do want to take up his thoughts on Christian wisdom in the technological age. I think there's some very practical and useful instruction there. So I'm going to ask you to read page 543 through 549. And you have two weeks to do it because next Lord's Day we have breaking of bread. So we won't have a class. So you will have two weeks to read those few pages. All right. Is anyone like to share, enlarge, or help us further with the discussion of wisdom as it has and reality as it has been taken up today?